but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The earth. Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from the series, Witnesses, a study on the book of Acts. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. All right, let me pray. Father in heaven, I am gracious, grateful for you, our gracious God. I pray uh, as we open your word, as we celebrate who you are, um, as we hear from you that your spirit would move and speak. Uh, I pray for uh, just strength. One last time this morning, I pray that you would use a broken guy who, apart from you, has nothing to say, that you would build your church, that we would, at the end, have our hearts tuned to your grace that you would have uh, sharpened us. And, and just, Holy Spirit, we just ask you to speak to us where we're at. And each person's in a little bit different place. Please just speak to us where we are at uh, so that we become more like Jesus, our Savior. Uh, it's in his name we pray and for his glory. Amen. Thanks. You guys can have a seat. If you have a Bible, turn it to Acts chapter 18. And if you don't have one, there should be one under the seat in front of you. And on that one, we're on page 602. 602. All right. Got me here. Any of y'all Seattle, Seattle Seahawks fans by chance? You know, y'all have a hard week. Do y'all sleep at all? I, mean, I know Pete Carroll didn't sleep yet after that call. Greatest catch in Super Bowl history, worst call in Super Bowl history. All in the same, like, 30 seconds, right? But thankfully, I don't care about either team, and I slept well, and I watched some commercials. All right? Got some commercials, and, and you, you know, all the hype is about the commercials. What's the best commercial, whatever? But the, the thing about the commercials, these, these companies spend millions of dollars, $4.5 million for 30 seconds so that you will eat Doritos or so that you will get your toe fungus taken care of. Did you see that one? Is toe fungus that big of an issue in the country? I don't know. Has anybody got toe fungus issue? Don't raise your hand, please. I don't want to know. Okay, well, I'll send you to CVS. Um, or, or here's one that, you know, that I, I watched, and it was, you know, I wanted to cry. I wanted to become a good dad. I wanted to send my daughter into the Army, and I wanted to buy a Nissan. That was great. That was a great commercial. I mean, it was, I, I was touched. Uh, or go to McDonald's. How many of you danced at McDonald's this week and hugged your mom, told your mom you love you, got a free Big Mac? And then there was, thankfully, Nationwide to bring us all into the depths of despair and reminding us that our dogs could drink Drano if we don't close the thing, and you know, Nationwide is on your side, all right? I don't, if you saw that one, that was great. But, but millions of dollars are spent by these companies, why? To compel you to action, to move you to do something, to convince you of something, to buy Doritos, to get your tongue fu- toe fungus out, whatever it is, right? Their desire is to influence you. Right to do these things, and and as we work through this book, and we talk about being a witness, and that's kind of the key word we've seen over and over again. One of the natures of a witness is really that exact thing: that we are compelling people towards something, that we are causing them to move in a direction. That is a nature of a witness. 
that it's a nature of an influencer, right? And we, we often hear, and I've probably been guilty of saying it, that everyone is a leader. Everyone's a leader, right? I don't know if that's true. I don't know if everyone's called to be a leader. I don't know if everyone's a leader. But I do know that every one of us is called to be an influencer, to, to compel people to action, to move people in a direction, to live a life that is compelling for Jesus. And what we're going to see today is we cover chapter 18, chapter 19. Hope you read ahead. Next week we'll be in chapter 20. But we're going to see Paul and some other guys and girls as influencers, and they're going to take people and they're going to move them to action. And that is the desire of us as a church. And so we're just going to look at five or six ideas, some are encouragement, some are some challenges. But what does it look like as we are influencers? Because you've got to ask the question, what are you influencing people towards? Because you're influencing them towards something. So what is it? That's so we're going to look at what, what it needs to be as we cover our text today, as we bring people into movement towards Jesus Christ. And, and if you're new, you haven't been here, you kind of forget where we've been, here, here's kind of a big, big picture, all right? We started back in August, really, where Jesus goes back into heaven. Before he does, he tells 120 folks, y'all are going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, that's about 15 years. They spend about 15, 18 years in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, right? Kind of mostly Jewish church spreading the gospel. After that, the apostle Paul, who was called Saul before, who used to kill Christians, now he becomes one. He goes on a missionary journey, and he kind of starts filling in that ends of the earth deal. And so he went on one missionary journey. He got back, and then he went on a second one. And we're in the, kind of towards the end of the second one, where he has gone through modern-day Turkey. He's gone into modern-day Greece. We saw him in Philippi last week, Thessalonica last week, and Brea last week. He went down to Athens last week. Today, he's going to continue and finish number two, and he's going to start number three. And we're going to see him in Corinth and some other cities. First place we're going to see him is Corinth. Here's what you need to know about Corinth. It was the Las Vegas slash New Orleans of the day. Huge entertainment capital of the world. Has an 18,000-seat auditorium. Host of the Isthmian Games, which are equivalent to the modern-day Olympics. But yet there was huge immorality. It was a port city, a lot of sailors, a lot of business, very wealthy. All right, so what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. That's the kind of idea. And Paul is going to go there to take the name of Jesus for the first time. Let's see what happens. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul shows up. He finds a couple. They've been kicked out of Rome because they're Jews. Because the emperor kicked the Jews out of Rome. So they're there. And he kind of connects with them because they're of the same trade. They make tents. Literally, they're leather makers. They make jackets for Fonzie and things, okay? That's what they do, okay? Just, just making sure you're awake. But, but they make tents, and they make all things out of leather, and there are, there's a commonality there, so they start working together. But why does Paul get a job? That's kind of weird, right? Why does he get a job? Because he's got to eat. He's got to pay for rent. He's, he's got to supply his, his own needs. And another thing that was going on in those days, they would have these itinerant traveling preachers or philosophers. They'd come to a town. They'd set up tent. They'd preach for a month. They'd ask people for money, and then they'd move on. And they were in it for the money. And what Paul would do constantly as he would go to a city is he would work. 
And he, you see it in the epistles. He says it to Corinthians. He says it to the Thessalonians. He said, I didn't want nothing from you. I didn't want to take money from you. I wanted you to see the gospel. So I worked hard. I worked hard, and I didn't take anything from you so that, that so you would know that I was in it for you and not the money. So Paul got a job. He worked hard. And here's the first principle of an influencer. And this is a biggie. I'll spend a little bit of time here. And I have a key word for each one. The first word is work. It's work. This is an area our culture is broke, okay? There's two extremes we see. We see the one extreme where everything is work. We work 80 hours a week. Our identity is work. If we lose that job, we lose our identity. It's, it's an idol. That's one extreme, all right? And the other extreme is, and I see this a lot more in the younger kind of generation. And younger folks, I'm not going to knock you. I'm not trying to be harsh on you, but I'm going to knock you a little bit. But I love you still, all right? But here's, here's kind of what I see a little bit in the culture today, especially in the younger, is that they work just enough so that they can play. I mean, I'm going to work 11 hours a week because if I work 11 hours a week, then I can spend the rest of my time surfing and, and doing this. And there's this minimalist mentality. And there's nothing wrong with surfing. Surf for Jesus, soul surfer. Okay, all those things, right? Great. <laughs> Just keep your arms in when you're swimming, you know? <laughs> but yeah, okay. But my point is, there's just a minimalist attitude. I just do enough to get by. And both mentalities are wrong, right? It, they're wrong. You were created to work, made in the image of God, a God who works. He, he creates, he designs, he speaks, he governs, he moves, he does these things. And you were made in his image to do the same thing. And there's this mentality, I know that, well, work is a result of the fall. Read your Bible. God creates Adam, he puts him in the garden, and he starts working. Right? He's not sitting there in a lawn chair with Eve, eating, drinking mint juleps and eating, hey, can you go get me one of those apples over there, Eve? That looks good. Woo, this is great. He's, he's cultivating. He's moving. The result of the fall is that work becomes work. But it's not that work was bad, right? And, and so we have to understand because work ultimately is worship. It's worship. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all things to the glory of God. And if work is worship, just think about this big scale here now. If work is worship, think about the amount of time you spend in worship. You're here 75 minutes, most of you. Maybe if you get caught in the parking lot, 90. If you're like a mega Christian, you're here for all three services, you're here for like four and a half hours worshiping. How much time are you out there worshiping at work? 30 hours, 40 hours, 50, 60 hours this week? If you're, if you're a mom, Stay-at-home mom or a working mom, 190 hours of work this week, right? I know there's not that many hours in a week. I, well, I know what 24 times 7 is. Like, hey, I got it. It's from an illustration point. Don't email me. You know, Bill, 7 times 24 equals, I don't care. <laughs> All right? But the point is, if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're probably working 190 hours a week. Okay? That's the way it works. But the idea is, how much time is here versus how much time is there? A lot. And that is important. It's a, compelling, it's a compelling idea to people towards Christ. It just is. It is a huge platform. We got, we got this guy. He works on the building in the back. 
he drives this, it's, he drives this awesome yellow truck, the Steelers truck. It's awesome. I'm not even a Steelers fan, but it's awesome. All right. And, and he just, he runs everywhere. I mean, he runs to his truck and he runs back to the ladder. He climbs the ladder. He gets down the ladder. He's running everywhere. We call him Bolt. So we just, we just watch, the staff just watches Bolt. Like, man, I, I want to hire the guy. I don't even know if he's Christian, but he's such a good worker. I'll put him to work. I'll find him something to do because he, he just, he's always working. And what we want to do is we want to send a thousand plus people out into the city of Savannah and Richmond Hill and Pooler and beyond to be bolt. That's what we want. Who show up on time. Eight o'clock means eight o'clock. They're there at 750. Right? That they're, the boss is there or not there. And you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't change things. That he doesn't have to come behind and fix everything. Right? That he, that just this excellence. And not just, we're talking at school. We're talking everywhere. At the end of the day, God, after he creates, he says what? It is good. Day two, it is good. Day three, it is good. It is for What we want is a bunch of people at the end of the day, they get home and they say, it was good. The way I treated my employees today, the way I spoke to my boss, it was good. The quality of my work today, it was good. The paper that I wrote, the, the, the soccer practice I just coached or I was at, it is good. Right? That's what we're talking about because it matters, because it's worship. Because I can tell you, no one cares about your Jesus if your work is junk. If you're a jerk of a boss, no one cares about your Jesus. If you're, a, if you're an employee that's just playing Clash of Clans all day, oh, wait, hold on a second. My clan just got attacked. You, you, need a, you, need a st- you don't even need to play that ever, let alone at work, unless you're nine, okay? But, th- I mean, they, they don't care. We need to make a compelling argument for Jesus. We need to teach our kids, our, our, our boys and our girls, that work is good. I, I, my 13-year-old... Or 14-year-old, excuse me. 14-year-old, last week, I was so proud of him. I said, I want you to fix this wall, do this thing. You know, I had, I told him what to do. I came home. It was done. And I didn't have to go back and say, no, no, you missed it. I was like, this is what I'm talking about. No one has to fix it. Now, my six-year-old, not there yet. All right, clean the room for him means put all the clothes in the closet and close the door and hope no dad doesn't look. So we have beatings to, to continue in that child's life. Right? But, but... The 14-year-old's getting it. But that's the idea, modeling it, doing it. And here, I hear you. I know some of you are like, well, Bill, you, I hate my job. My job is lousy. My, jerk, my boss is a jerk. I'm the only Christian. I got it. I have had lousy jobs. I was married. I was about, I mean, I was about to get married. I'm a school teacher, but in the summer, I'm off. I go live with my parents because my wife, my now wife, is living in the house we bought. I work for my grandfather. I can say this now because he's with Jesus. He was cheap. Pay me five bucks an hour. This is not in the 70s. Five. This is minimum wage wasn't even that low. I'm the firstborn grandkid making five dollars an hour with my college degree. Lousy job. And at night, I was sweeping from 10, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. I was for seven whopping dollars an hour sweeping parking lots. College graduate. 
When I, after we got married, I had kids. My wife was home with the kids. So I would wake up two or three mornings a week. I'd go tie mobile homes down at 5 a.m. so that I could be at my, my office at 9 a.m. Lousy work. Hated it. My first job, I worked at Kids R Us at 14. I was the care bear. <laughs> All right? Okay? So I get lousy jobs. And then I graduated to the Kool-Aid man until I had to go back to school. So I hear you on you hate your job. But the reality is your job, even if you don't like it, is worship. And it's not an excuse to do nothing. If Paul was here and people were doing nothing, Paul is very gracious in 1 Thessalonians. There's some Thessalonians that are lazy. And so he's like, hey, let's go. Stop being idle. Get to work. By the time 2 Thessalonians comes around, he's like, okay, if they're not going to work, then don't let them eat. So that's mean. No, it's motivating. And that's the idea. Men, there's no, men get in trouble when they do nothing, especially young men. You, you, the goal is to be tired at the end of the day, men. That is a good thing. I know in our culture, no, you want to be energetic so you can go out. No, no. The goal is to work hard so that you're tired and you go to bed at 10 o'clock and you're like, well, that means I'm a loser. Maybe, but that's the way you're supposed to be. All right? You're not supposed to be up at one in the morning. I'm just telling you. you need, if, that, if you're not tired at one in the morning, then you need another job. You need to go get two jobs because you're supposed to work hard, be tired, go to bed, and then Saturday you sleep in. That's the way it works. And Sunday you come to church. All right? That's, that's the idea, because it just matters, and we as a church just want to be compelling towards, towards Christ and the gospel, and so we work. All right, at the end of the day, it's, it's good. It makes a compelling argument, and so Paul is a hard worker. So he's working hard, verse 5, something changes. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied, circle that word, he was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And so it's, it's clear in the Greek text to use a tense that kind of shows there's a change here. Paul switches from primarily tent making now, and he moves to being occupied, or the word means to be absorbed with the word. What happened? What changed? Well, Paul and Silas, we find out, I mean, uh, Timothy and Silas bring a check from Philippi. We find that out in 2 Corinthians 8, that the church at Philippi stokes a check. Remember who's at Philippi? Lydia, seller of purple, Wall Street girl in a power suit. The slave girl who had a demon, the Roman, the Roman centurion guy who was over the jail, those guys are Philippi. They stoke a check because they have a job and they can do it so that Paul's needs are met. And so he can pull away a little bit from the tent making and start focusing more on the word because that's what he's called to do. And herein lies the principle for us. One of the struggles we have in America, even in the American church, is we are busy doing a lot of stuff. Tons of things doing nothing well. A million bazillion things. We're a 17-sport athlete, and I got this club and this club, five Bible studies and four community groups. And this. We're doing all these things, and we think because we're busy, we're having influence and impact, and really we're just busy. Because you are not designed to be able to do multiple things, a lot of things well. A couple things, yeah. Some of you have a higher capacity than others, but just, look, just use the athletic world as an example. How many athletes do you know that were able to make it to the highest level in more than one sport? I could think of two. 
And then somebody came up, and there was another guy I'd never heard of because he probably was born in like the 20s, all right? But I could think of Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders, two guys that made it to the top of the deal in two sports. And to be quite honest, they were better at one than the other still. But the principle is you weren't designed to be able to do a lot of things well, but you have certain things that you can do well. And what I, as I study leaders and I read books and I, and I look at the scripture and I look at Moses and his father-in-law who says, you need to stop doing this and start doing this. And I look at the apostles in Acts 6 where they say, we're not going to do this because we have to do this. The principle we need to grasp as an influencer is focus. We need to be a little bit more zoomed in on the things that we're called and, and, and gifted to do. And I know there's some guy that's like elbowing his wife now. See? I told you I wasn't supposed, I'm not called to diaper duty. That's your deal, right? If that's your husband, you just call the church subtly, and we have our Nehemiah beard-pulling ministry all ready for him. We'll take care of him after the hours of 9 to 5 when he gets home, right? Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. Yes, you're called to do other things, but the idea is, what are, you real, what are the main areas of your calling of your giftedness? I am husband to Sarah. I am father to Samuel, Susanna, Tripp, and Seth. Those are primary callings. I am pastor of this church. That is next. Those are the areas I need to focus on. I am not painter guy. Now, I've been painting at the house a little bit this week, and I've reinforced to me not only that I hate it, but that I'm no good at it. I get paint everywhere. It's all over my hands. It's all over the carpet. It's nasty. I'm just not good at it. I am at best a D-minus painter. Now, I could take a class from Sherwin-Williams or something or go down to SCAD or whatever, I'll, and I'll be at best maybe a C-minus. You could get me to a C-minus, but that's the top of my ceiling. But I got gifts over here. I think I'm a B-minus over here. I, I can get that maybe to an A-minus. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to strengthen my strengths. And once in a while, I'm going to paint, but that's not where I'm called. Kane, I joke with Kane. Kane is at best an F-minus singer. I mean, that's being gracious. <laughs> if he took Pavarotti came and taught him for a year, he could get to maybe a B, an F plus. All right? All right? But you know what? It's not his gift. But I put him with a bunch of young men. He's an ace. He's an ace. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give him singing lessons. I'm going to put him with a bunch of young men. I'm going to let him flourish. It's not that he ever is not going to ever sing. We, he will. We'll just put him to the front right corner. That's where we put him. All right? It's not that I'm ever not gonna, never not going to paint, but I'm not going to focus all my energy there. And the idea is, whatever God has called you to do, created you to do, if you're a builder guy, then do it for the glory of God. If you're a businessman, then do it and rock it for the glory of God. You're, you're stay-at-home mom, do it and rock it for the glory of God. And don't ever feel guilty for people trying to pull you away and to do something else. Some of you, especially the people pleasers out there, need to learn to say no and not feel bad about it. Ladies... Just because you see some lady on Instagram, every meal is gluten-free, sugar-free, organic, this and that, and, and it looks beautiful, and you feel like, I need to do that. It is okay to roll out the Lucky Charms once in a while at night. <laughs> Bagel, Lucky Charms, orange juice, that is a good dinner. All right? There's nothing wrong with it. I grew up on this stuff, all right? So I'm 5'6". <laughs> but I'm alive, right? It's, don't be guilted into, well, she does all those things. I got to do all those things. As a dad, well, the, the men are doing that and the men are doing this. It's not that you ever on a Saturday don't help people move. Don't use your family as an excuse. But you know what? 
if you need a date night, you don't have to go out with the guys and do this because they're doing it. You can be with your family. That is where you're called. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be the missionary guy if you're the great finance guy. Be the great finance guy to the glory of God. The idea is, is to be focused on what God has called you. And, and look, if you're a single folk, we got a lot of you. For, number one, don't you ever feel that you are a, a subpar per, oh, I'm not married and kids. I don't have influence. That is bogus. The Apostle Paul, as best we know, is single. Jesus was clearly single. This church runs on singles, let me just tell you. They just do. So don't you ever feel guilty because, you're, oh, we're not as important. I don't have kids. You can have a huge impact. And what you need to understand is this is the time when you, when you are single to try and fail things and realize, oh, I'm no good at that, so I won't ever do that again. Because you can live off ramen noodles for a long time, I promise. Honeycomb works. So try it. Go try this, and if you fail, okay, I'm not there. But, just, but go out there and be focused and not do 75 things, right? This is, this is Jesus. Jesus does, he is, you read the Gospel of Luke, and his eyes and his heart is set towards Jerusalem. And nothing is going to distract him from that. Yeah, he goes to Galilee, he goes, he goes here. But he's headed to the cross. That is his focus. That is his goal for the joy that's set before him. And so that needs to be us. What, what is it? And start asking God. If you don't know, start asking. Maybe you're the prayer warrior. Maybe you're this. But focus, right? Focus. Our work is compelling people to the gospel. We're focused. And thankfully, Paul was focused. You know why? You know, it doesn't say it here, but you realize when you do the timeline that he writes two books of the Bible in this context. He writes First and Second Thessalonians while he's in Corinth because he's able to focus on the word. And so we've been blessed because he was focused. Stay on task, right? Stay on task. So what happens next is what happens every time. Everyone gets mad at Paul, all right? Verse 6, they opposed him, shocker, and reviled him. And he shook out his garments and said, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with the entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And so we see great fruit and great opposition all at the same time. And, and in the context of that, it doesn't say it, but it's implied, is that Paul is hurting. He's struggling. Corinth is a hard place to do ministry. It is hard to be opposed. It, it, he's a man. Don't exalt Paul so high. When he gets punched, it hurts. When he gets beat, his back bruises. He bleeds like us. There's times of loneliness. And when he wakes up in the morning, there's got to be a little fear that today could be the last day. Are they going to stone me again? Are they going to beat me again? What's going to happen? And the reason I think he's struggling is because of what God does. God shows up. And he says to Paul, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? For I and it's emphatic in the Greek text, for I, I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, 18 months he stays teaching the word because God encouraged him. God's presence. I mean, how encouraging when Paul's struggling, when he's hurting, when he's lonely, when he's tired. It's been five, six years between missionary journeys. He hasn't been home. He hasn't been on his own bed. He's been working eight hours a day. He's been doing this. How encouraging for Jesus himself to show up and say, 
with you. And ain't no one going to touch you. I got you. I got you. How freeing is that for Paul to show up every morning and to preach and to teach knowing he's safe? Remember, there's a scene in The Karate Kid. Great movie. Remember Daniel's son? He's getting his tail kicked every day by the Cobra Kai. He's, Cobra Kai, Cobra Kai. And Johnny's kicking his tail. And what happens? Finally, who shows up? Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi shows up, protects him, and then he goes down to the dojo. So you ain't touching Daniel's son till the tournament. So I teach him the crane technique. But what is it? It frees, when Mr. Miyagi shows up, it frees Daniel's son. He can go to school. He can talk trash to the Cobra Kai. He doesn't care because he knows he's got Miyagi. And the principle for believers is this, that God's presence always empowers God's people. It's meant to. And that's your word. That's your next word is presence. And, and constantly through the scripture, this is the theme we see. Joshua is about to take over for Moses. That is a huge, daunting task. And so what does God do? He shows up and says, be strong, be courageous, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. Jesus, when he gives the great commission, says, you're going to make disciples, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Acts 1, our verse, Acts 1, 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then as a result, you will be my witnesses. Why? Because I am with you, my power. God's presence empowers God's people. This is the way it is. This is the way it's meant. And maybe this morning, the only reason God brought you here is because you need to hear the voice of Jesus himself tell you, I am with you. I know you feel alone in that marriage. I know it's been 27 years and this knucklehead's still doing the same thing. I, I'm with you still. I'm there. You're at the office. You're the only believer. You're the only one. You get attacked because you're a man of integrity. You're a woman of integrity. You're not going and doing it. And you feel like quitting. You feel like the end of the day. You're just like, I can't do it anymore. And Jesus is whispering to you this morning, but I'm with you. You're the high school, college student. You're the only one trying to be pure. Just, they mock you. They laugh at you. You think you're having no impact over there at that school. And you're all by yourself. And what you need to hear this morning is Jesus' voice say, I'm with you. And you don't know it, but this little girl over here, she's 17. She's struggling. She's watching you. You don't know it. And 12 years from now, She's going to become a Christian, and she's going to go back to what you did in that class and how you acted. She's going to remember you, and you're going to have an impact you never even knew. Paul, he says to Paul, there's people in this city that are mine. You don't even know them. You don't even know them yet, but they're there. You don't know what I'm doing. You don't know, but I am with you. God's presence always empowers God's people. It's huge for us, right? huge and so he does and so what happens paul goes and preaches 18 months and no one touches him you can read the next three verses no one touches him. now they grab another guy and beat the tar out of him it's a guy named sosthenes but he becomes a christian later so that's all right but they beat him up instead of paul and then really that verses 18 through 23 at the end of the trip he goes to ephesus We'll come back to that. He cuts his hair because he's in a vow, because he's being a Jew to Jews and a Gentile to Gentiles as always. And he goes to Caesarea, goes up to Jerusalem, and goes down to Antioch. 
But as soon as he gets there, he jumps. So at the end of the trip, he's, he's in, he's in uh, Corinth. He goes to Caesarea for a minute, jumps to Ephesus for a brief moment, heads down to Jerusalem, back up to Antioch, starting place. And before he can even unpack his bags, he spent some time there, and then Paul left. He goes on number three. He's like, round three, let's go. Come on, head him up, move him out. And he goes back to the regions of Galatia and Fergus, strengthening disciples. So he jumps right back into Galatia and all these areas. And we really don't find out what happens there. It doesn't tell us. Missionary journey three, very little detail. Right, very little detail. We get a little bit of snapshot here and there, but we don't get a lot of detail. Here's what we do find out. Next, in verse 24. There's a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. That means he's passionate. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So this is a guy named Apollos. We find out later he's one of the stud preachers of the New Testament. I mean, he is the Matt Chandler of his day. He is the Chuck Stanley, the Tim Keller, whatever your spectrum, whoever your guy is, you know, Chuck Swindle. He's the man, competent teacher. But here's the problem. He doesn't have the full, he doesn't have all the info. He either only gets pieces of it, but he doesn't have all the info. All right, he's got Jesus and he's got the baptism of John the Baptist. And that's all he's got. And he's, but he's preaching, he's going at it, and he's good. He begins to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, notice Priscilla's name is first. This is the way it is from now on out. And, and most, most uh, commentaries think the reason is because even though she's the woman in, the, in, this, in this context, she's the more vocal. She's the more smart. So she is going to be kind of the, the initiator here, which shows me, ladies, that you have a valid place and encouraging and challenging. Now, they take him away silently. They do it in the context of a couple. They don't do it in the front. But here's this couple. They grab this dude, and they take him and explain to him the way of God more accurately. So they say, hey, dude, you are the man. You, you rock, but you're missing a few pieces. Let me kind of fill you in on the gaps. There's this resurrection, and there's the Holy Spirit, and there's baptism, and they kind of fill in the gaps. And after that, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the, the brothers encouraged him, wrote to the disciples to welcome him. He arrived. He greatly helped those through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Man, he becomes a better preacher because this couple grabs him and says, dude, you rock. Let me give you a few more details. He goes, and now he's this powerful, powerful preacher, all because they build into him a little bit. And, and almost the same thing happens in 19. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples. And he said to them, Do you, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came to them and began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men at all. They get their own Pentecost. So, but it, it, kind of side note here. If you're ever wondering if rebaptism is in the Bible, here's your text. Here's a group of guys, 12 of them. They knew about Jesus. They knew about John the Baptist. They were actually baptized by John the Baptist, which is, was a baptism of repentance. And Paul says, oh, I, I got to fill in the gaps here. Resurrection. Baptism, post-conversion, Holy Spirit, and they get re-baptized. And here's the question you got to ask. If baptism is not important, post-conversion, then why does Paul baptize them? If, if it's not a big deal, 
Hey, dude, you were taken care of when you're three. You didn't even know it, but you're good. If it's not a big deal, then why didn't he say, hey, dude, you're good. You got baptized by John. He was a good dude, cousin of Jesus. You're gold. Why does he rebaptize him if it's not important? It, because it is. <laughs> That's the answer. Because it's every time we've seen it so far, believe and then baptize. Every time. Every time. And, and so if you're here and you're like, ah, you know, I, I don't know if I should do this. Just, just read the book of Acts a couple times this week and you tell me what God says. We're doing, and if you have questions about it, I'll, I'd love to, to sit down and talk with you. We have a baptism class next week. But it doesn't, it doesn't save you. It doesn't wash away sins. But it is important because it pictures uniting with Christ, which is why he has him do it again. But here's the picture. Here's the big point. Here's our key word. Here's our principle. It's better. There we go. Better. Both Apollos and these 12 men, after being with Paul, after being with Priscilla and Aquila, they are better. Apollos is a better preacher. These 12 men are better informed about who Jesus is. And an influencer makes those around them better. Right? Michael Jordan was the best player ever. Sorry, Kobe. Right? But one of the things that Michael Jordan did is he made everyone around him better. Scottie Pippen was nothing without Michael Jordan. Tony Kukoc was nothing without Michael Jordan. Tom Brady. Why is it that Tom Brady can take five, seven white dudes with beards down to here that look like they should be using, working at a steel mill and make them look like all-stars? He just makes people better. He, he, everybody around him gets better. Michael Jordan makes people better. Tom Brady makes people better. Do you make people better by being around them? Your roommate's in a better place spiritually because of you? And not because you're studying Revelation for 38 hours a day. I'm not talking about that. Just being around you, you make them better. Your kids, are they in a better place when you're home? Ladies, is your husband a better dad, a better husband because of you? Not because, oh, I'm telling him how to do it. He's not listening. Not because of that, because you are an encourager, because you are a helper. Husbands, are your wives in a better place? Spiritually, because of you, because you're loving and serving and shepherding. The guy in the cubicle next to you, your employees, are they better employees because of you? Are, are your employer, is he in a better place because of you? These, you got to ask these questions because you're influencing in one way or the other. Is your community group better when you show up or not? Is, is, we have a mandate as a church to strengthen one another. Paul's goal is to strengthen the churches, that you are to, to provoke one another, to stimulate one another, to love and good deeds, as long as it's still called today, to encourage one another. That is your job. That doesn't mean you never say anything negative. I'm not saying, oh, we're happy, happy, happy. There is a time and place to, to, for constructive criticism to say, hey, but here's some principles. When you go to tell people and to criticize, number one, remember the goal is to build them up, right? It's not to tear them down. To go in humbly, and gently and prayerfully, and always give encouragement with your critique. We watch this show Chopped at the house. You watch, anyone see Chopped? We're addicted. We're like, we got a hot dog. You got 10 seconds to get the ketchup on it. You know, you see, and we, you know, the kids are like throwing it around and we get a mess, but it, and we have a blast with it, right? Tonight, chef, I prepared for you Oscar Mayer in a bun with beans and a Coke. I mean, that's a. That's a Right, we, But here's the thing I love about this show. Even though they're going to cut you off the show and dash your dreams, 
before they do, they always encourage you. You know what? The color of your food was beautiful. It stunk, but it was pretty. You're shopped. Uh, you know, there's a, you're not going to get your own restaurant because you stink. But it was, it was pretty. But there's always this positive, you know, and, and it's a great model for us. Honey, I love that you want to be with the kids. I just think sometimes you yell at them a little bit too much. Instead of, stop yelling at the kids. Right? It, it makes a big difference. I appreciate the, the work that you put in on this project, but, but here's, here's, here's four things you miss. Right? Rather than, this was trash, you're garbage. It's, it's just the same thing, but it, it's a, be able to enforce. Are people better or worse because of you? That's the question. Right? And that's what we got to ask. Because if you're, the, if you're always tearing down, I can tell you you're not, an, you're not an influencer. You are, but just not towards what you want. Right? Well, guess what happens next? They get mad. Shocker. Right? Again, they yell at him. Everyone's mad. They try to lay hands on him, right? But in the context of that, he stays two years. And, and here's one of the most, I don't know if any of you guys read ahead. I hope you're reading ahead. And if some of you, I've heard, oh, I've never read that before. This is one of those weird passages that if you've never read through the book, if you read it, you're like, well, that's, that's I never heard of that. Let's unpack this because this is kind of fun. Verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that he touched, that touched his skin, were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, this is not Paul taking out a hanky and saying, I'm going to cry in this and give it to you for $20. This is not what's going on. All right, I, I, I dipped this in the, in the Jordan River and if you take it home, your, your dog will be healed. That's not what we're talking about. The word for handkerchief is not something you stuff in your suit pocket. It's actually a work rag. So Paul's working, and he's making tents and stuff, and he takes a rag, and he wipes the sweat away, and he puts it down. And he's not giving it to them. It says they are taking it. Right? They, they took them themselves, and they go home and bring it to Grandma, who's sick, and they kind of wipe her head, and she gets, she gets better. And, and his apron that he takes off after the end of the day, they take it, and they kind of wave it at this demon-possessed guy, and the demon goes, woo, and... and it's, it's crazy stuff. That's why it says extraordinary miracles. It's, every miracle is extraordinary. These are like beyond that. And everyone's hearing about it, and people are hearing about it. And some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So these, these seven sons of this Jewish priest who kind of go in and their deal is casting out demons, they go up to this demon-possessed guy and say, in the name of Jesus, the, the guy that Paul is preaching, come out. And the demon speaks back to them. It says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. Different word. I've heard of Paul. I know Jesus, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, isn't that a... What do you do with that? You can't skip it. You got naked, wimping, limping guys going on, so you got to deal with it. But WWE in this house. 
I mean, what do you... And after you get over the kind of a little bit of the... That's a weird passage. Here's the sobering thing. You ready? Because if you really think about this, it ought to wake you up. If you are an influencer for the kingdom of God, Satan knows your name. He knows where you live. He knows where you minister. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows you. Now that ought to wake us up. What does he say? I know Jesus, and I've heard of the apostle Paul. But who are you? That ought to wake you up. Because these, whether you know it or not, demons are real. And they are strong, and they are more strong than you. And this is what they would like to do with you if they were allowed. So what do we do when we go up some, against an enemy that is bigger than us, that could whoop seven of us like that? How do we deal with that? Here's how. Here's your next word. It's faith. What's the difference between Paul and the seven sons of Sceva? It's one thing. It's faith. One of them heard about Jesus. I heard about Jesus and I heard about Paul. One of them knows Jesus. One of them has put their faith in the conquering son of God who defeated death, who conquered the grave, and, and permanently defeated Satan and death. The other ones have just heard about him. See, what is, when Peter says, how do you resist the devil? Because he says the devil is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. How does Peter say you handle that? He says you resist him firm in your faith. And then he will flee. What does Jesus do when he is attacked by Satan himself? He doesn't say, I'm God, go away. What does he do? He quotes Deuteronomy. If your spiritual life was dependent on the, your ability to quote Deuteronomy, how would you do? Do you even know where Deuteronomy is? I don't, I don't know if I can quote one verse from Deuteronomy. But here's the point. When Jesus is attacked, what does he do? He, get, he, do, he uses the weapons of our warfare that he has given us, the word of God and prayer. He spends 40 days fasting and praying, and he quotes scripture, and Satan flees. If you feel like you are in the target of the enemy, and some of you do, some of you this week, you're like, man, I know he knows my name because he is in my house and he has possessed my children. <laughs> I know that I am under attack. Two things. Number one, you need to be encouraged. You say, be encouraged. Yes, because if you are under attack, then that means you are a threat. And that is a good thing. If you don't face spiritual attack ever, Here's the reality, y'all, then you're not a threat to the enemy, and he doesn't know your name, and he's really not worried about you. That's worse off than, than being in the target. But if you are in the target, the only way you can stand is firm in your faith, using the weapons that Jesus has given, the word of God and prayer. That is what makes the enemy flee, that you believe that you have a conquering king who defeated death, and guess what? Demons know it. They know they have been defeated. They know that they are destined for hell because Jesus is alive. And, and come back to that as, as being firm in the faith. That is key. And, and so the question as we kind of, let's quickly move on to the next point is this. Just ask yourself, am I, am I a threat to the enemy? Am I on his radar? 
And if you're not, then you're not an influencer because he's going to attack you if you are. What happens? What's the result? Quickly, this becomes known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jew and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The result is worship, right? And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. A number of them, uh, those who had practiced magic arts, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them, and it found it come 50,000 pieces of silver. It's equivalent of like $8 million. It's a lot of dough. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What's happening is these people are coming to faith. They're coming out of witchcraft. They're coming out of idolatry. And they're taking these books and these, of their old practices, and they're burning them. They're getting rid of them. They're, they're separating from their idols, and they're worshiping Jesus. And it's getting to such a point, it's causing a ruckus. Go down to 23. There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Why? For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. What's going on is in Ephesus is one of the seventh wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis. Here's a model, an artistic drawing of it. It's probably pretty accurate, as history tells. It was ginormous. And it was a, a, a centerpiece of Ephesus. And people come from all over the world to worship Artemis, or Diana, as she's known. She was the god of fertility. And the way you worshipped her, quite honestly, you would go and you would connect yourself to a temple prostitute, and that was worship. So it was a happening place in Ephesus, as you can imagine. But what's going on here is so many people are coming to faith in Jesus that they're stopping to go, and they're stopping to buy these little shrines, and, and, and businesses are suffering because people are no longer worshiping Artemis, they're now worshiping Jesus, and the business guys are getting together like, we need to do something, y'all. It'd be like half of Vegas becoming Christian, and no one's going to the to casinos anymore, and they're like, we're losing money. No one's gambling anymore. No one's coming to the clubs anymore. And it's, it's a problem, so this whole ruckus starts, and, and they start this riot that has to be, eventually, in verse 41, they had to dismiss the assembly, otherwise Rome was going to come down hard. But the idea is, Paul is seeing the gospel change from the inside out, and it is changing the culture. And here's your last word. This is the goal, y'all. The goal is the heart. What we like to do as Americans is we like the quick fix, we like to legislate change. We think if everyone's just going to be kind and follow the rules, everything will be good. So let's just get the Ten Commandments on every door and everything will be good. The Israelites had the original ten and it didn't do them any good. It didn't change their heart. The heart has to change. And so Paul is not out there preaching against businessmen. He's preaching Christ. People's lives are changing one at a time. And slowly the culture from the inside out changes and it starts affecting the business. That is the way we change a nation, y'all. It is the church being the church. It is living the gospel one soul at a time changing. And then marriages change. And then families change. And then kids change. And then a city changes. It's not up to the councilman. It's not up to the congressman. It is not up to the president. It is up to the church. And so we focus on the heart. Here's the problem. You can't change the heart. So what do we do? We point people to the one who can. 
See, the advertisers for all the commercials, they use famous people. They use Liam Nielsen and this movie star and this movie star to try to get you to buy their product. What we do is we get out of the way and show them Jesus. This is the one who changes. We make a compelling argument with our work. We're focused in the areas he's gifted us. We build one another up in him. But in the end, it's about him. And he's the one who empowers it because he is the one who is present. He's the one that changed your heart. He is the one who opened your eyes. And so you just ask and pray that he would start doing it around us. And it's happening, y'all. It is happening. I see teenagers changing. I see parents changing. I see older couples who haven't been excited about Jesus in 30 years. And they are raising their hands in this wacky church, praising Jesus. Things are happening, not because of us, because God is moving. That's how you change a culture, the heart. And so this is what we want. just want to spend some time in prayer, give you an opportunity to respond, to remember that it's just because God is with us. That he left heaven, he became a man, he died on a cross, he rose again to forgive sins. If you believe in him, you have eternal life. And he says, I empower mission now. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we're going to spend, you guys can come on up, praise team. We're just going to spend 60 seconds, and, and they're going to play lightly, and just, you guys spend 60 seconds in prayer, just whatever it is. Maybe you, maybe you need to go tell someone at work, you know what, I've been a jerk. Maybe you need to be more of an encouragement. Just you reflect for 60 seconds where this needs to be played out, because we're going to worship for 10 minutes, and then you're going to go really worship for 150 hours until you come back, all right? And so just use 60 seconds to reflect on where does this need to be played out in my life this week. And then we'll stand and we'll celebrate the fact that God is with us and that he wants others to celebrate and see, to look and see our God. So let's just pray for a few moments and then we'll stand. Lord Jesus, meet with us by your spirit. Bring about change in your people. Make us more like you compel people through our lives and our lips that you are who you say you are. We fail, we're, we are prone to wonder, we sung it earlier, but Lord, when we do, let us come back to you in your grace. And just use us for your, for your glory. As a church, as a people, send us out this week as worshipers uh, to make a compelling argument for the gospel. It's in your name we pray.